Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from The Terminal, made in 2004. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If you're a diehard Steven Spielberg fan, and I know many of you listening are, you could be forgiven for missing the terminal if asked to name all of Spielberg's films chronologically. Now, Back when I was preparing my chronological list of films for this podcast, I paused very briefly when I saw the terminal on the list. Oh yeah, that film, I said, even though I'd seen it three or four times. When you look at the film scores that Williams wrote before and after the terminal, this score is pretty much a blip on the radar. But that doesn't mean either Williams or Spielberg took this movie less seriously than working on, say, Schindler's List or Catch Me If You Can. There's an urban myth surrounding the genesis of this film idea, which follows a man from Eastern Europe during his time stuck in the JFK airport in New York after his country falls under a military coup. It bears a strong resemblance to the true-life story of a Middle Eastern refugee who lived in Paris's airport for about 18 years at the same time the movie was being made, and the urban myth says that this refugee was paid $5 million for his life story. Amblin Entertainment did buy the life rights to the man's story, but only paid a few thousand dollars to cover their basis, since the main plot of the story was radically different. 95% of the movie takes place inside JFK Airport, but there was no way to shut down that airport to use it for two months of filming. So Spielberg and production designer Alex McDowell used an empty airplane hangar in Los Angeles to recreate JFK's international terminal. I've never been to that part of JFK Airport, so I don't know how faithful it was to the real thing, but it definitely looks like it. You feel like this is a living, breathing airport full of bustling life. Spielberg populated the set with some amazing actors. Starring in his third Spielberg film, Tom Hanks plays Victor Navorsky, the man who was stuck in the airport for about nine months, waiting for the military coup in his home country of Krakosia to end so he can visit New York. Stanley Tucci plays Victor's nemesis, the supervisor of the customs department of the airport. And Tucci has the toughest role, really trying not to be an over-the-top villain, but also not too likable. The supporting cast of airport employees who befriend Victor is great, and I applaud Spielberg for making it diverse ethnically. Diego Luna, who was trying to gain a foothold with American audiences after starring in Itumama Tambien three years earlier, plays a food delivery man. I like Zoe Zaldana as a customs employee, but the real scene stealer is Kumar Palana as Gupta, a janitor hiding out in the United States after committing a crime in his native India. Palana had been a fixture in Wes Anderson's movies, notably The Royal Tenenbaums in 2001, and he outright takes command of every scene he's in, including a pivotal one where he juggles large rings and spins plates. I'll talk about that scene in a moment. And then there's Catherine Zeta-Jones, starring in her second movie since winning an Oscar for playing Velma Kelly in Chicago. Here, she's a flight attendant who keeps running into Victor at the airport. I wouldn't peg the terminal as a romantic comedy, but the romance angle between Zeta-Jones and Hanks was played well and gave the story a little bit more emotional weight. I'm not sure if the terminal is a comedy or a drama. Let's call it a dramedy, 
just like Catch Me If You Can. And to help sell the drama and comedy aspects was John Williams. The score is relatively short, about 40 minutes, and that might have to do with the fact that Williams went right to work on this score immediately after finishing the music for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban in late March, with barely a month's time for composition. If the film had needed wall-to-wall music, that might have been an issue, but the time frame seemed to work for the musical demands of the movie. About a year earlier, just before filming began, Williams was asked by Spielberg to come up with an anthem for the fictional country of Krakosia to use during filming. The anthem would play on TV monitors in the film, and be sung by Tom Hanks as well. Williams complied with something that helps you believe Krakosia is a real country. And there's a major plotline in the film involving jazz music, but Williams avoids that genre for the most part in his score, having already bathed himself in it for Catch Me If You Can. The score for The Terminal feels grounded in the Eastern European style, full of some of the instruments you might find in music from that part of the world. Very fitting, since the main character comes from that part of the world. There's an accordion wafting in and out of the score, And in an interview on the film's DVD, Williams talks about using the cymbalum, a standing percussion instrument that was born in Eastern Europe. There is also the clarinet, heavily featured in the score. Though the word clarinet comes from Western European languages, many of history's best composers that grew up in Eastern Europe, such as Johann Strauss, Igor Stravinsky, and Antonin Dvorak, made the clarinet a prominent part of many compositions. When I hear the clarinet in the terminal, it really does make me feel like I'm hearing music played in a small Hungarian performance hall. The clarinet solos are done by Emily Bernstein, who had been part of the Hollywood Studio Orchestra for many years before gaining her big break with the terminal. At the time, Bernstein was the principal clarinet player for the Pasadena Symphony and had performed on many other film scores before the terminal, including several John Williams scores but I couldn't find her name as a soloist anywhere else but the terminal. Bernstein definitely benefited from having Spielberg be a former clarinet player. He insisted that she get her name in the credits, which is not a common practice in movies, unless the performer is famous or has a director and composer pushing for that credit. Bernstein makes her first appearance 20 minutes into the movie, as we see Victor walking through the terminal in a bathrobe, using a sink to wash himself and then trying to get a visa. The theme for Victor feels a little bit like a dance, and it makes the comedy we're watching on screen funny, but not over the top as Bernstein flows through the octave scale on the clarinet. Thank you. 
Victor's theme really stood out for me when I saw this movie in the theater. It was a true comedy composition that we hadn't heard from Williams since Home Alone. But this music isn't necessarily designed to make you laugh. It's just helping the film stay grounded in the comedy roots for the first hour or so in the film. One of the great montages on the film comes after Victor loses his food vouchers and begins returning luggage carts for quarters to buy food at Burger King. It's about 90 seconds long and we get the best rendition of the main theme, as triumphant as it can sound on a clarinet. Bernstein gets a break here as the flutes take over. After the 55-minute mark in the film, Victor's theme takes a backseat to a new theme as Victor settles into his new life and we transition to a romantic comedy. Earlier in the film, Victor acted as a matchmaker between Zoe Saldana's Dolores and Diego Luna's Enrique. The montage featured a very urgent string composition that I want to play before I begin discussing it. Does it sound familiar? Williams has used a variation of this before, dating back to Heartbeeps in 1981, the theme for Frank Jr. in Catch Me If You Can, and just before this score, during the Quidditch match scene in Prisoner of Azkaban. There have been lots of John Williams fans trying to find incidents of the maestro taking melodies and using them in other unrelated movies, calling it self-plagiarism. Perhaps there are a couple of those instances out there, but... I think if a composer likes a particular chord progression and composition, there's no harm in using it a few times. 
I will say that using it at least four times in his career, including three times in three consecutive scores, is a bit weird. A quick sidebar concerning the matchmaker montage sequence. We find out that Zoe Saldana's character is a Star Trek fan, which would not have been very notable in 2004 while you were watching the movie. But now, it's a funny joke, because Saldana would play Uhuru in the three Star Trek reboot films from 2009 to 2016. So the main love story concerns Victor and Amelia. Though Victor knows that Amelia is romantically involved with a married man, she slowly becomes enamored with him once she realizes the mistake of loving a married man. Amelia doesn't know about Victor's situation, thinking he is just a very frequent flyer. One day, Amelia and Victor have a romantic dinner on the airport patio, and this is possibly the standout scene of the film. On the surface, it's just two people finally having a cannelloni dinner, but the airport employees waft in and out of the scene to keep the scene light. And this is where Kumar Palana juggles his rings and spins some plates as the scene turns from romantic to sad as Amelia tries not to think about the married man who is trying to contact her through her pager. In keeping with the Eastern European theme, Williams uses an accordion for most of the scene. The melody is extremely lyrical, so much so that I can imagine Alan and Marilyn Bergman creating a nice song out of it if Williams had asked them. Once Amelia and Victor arrive at the dinner location, the accordion really gets center stage.
a little musical interlude coming up as Gupta juggles his rings. There's a resolution to the scene as Amelia and Victor throw away their pagers. John Williams creates a love theme at the end of this scene when Amelia and Victor agree to meet again in 13 days. The Innocence on Piano shows us how pure Victor's love is for Amelia. This is as close as Williams gets to putting in a jazz feel for the score. This love thing gets its big moment when Amelia returns to the airport two weeks later, finds out the truth about Victor, and still falls for him when he shows her the fountain he has built for her. The love theme grows as Amelia's love grows for Victor. In the film, the love theme plays out on the woodwinds as Victor talks about the promise he made to his dying father to get the autograph of a jazz saxophone player in New York City. On the soundtrack CD, the love theme plays out on piano and bass, sounding like music in the jazz clubs that Victor talks about in the scene.
Victor confesses his love for Amelia. They kiss, and the love theme gets the true John Williams treatment. It's one of John Williams' best love themes. It's not as flashy as Han and Leia's theme or Can You Read My Mind or Across the Stars, but it doesn't get flashy simply because this love story isn't going to have a happy ending, and he knows it. The last piece of music we hear in the film is the love theme, playing as Victor puts the final autograph in his peanut can and takes a taxi to the airport for the plane ride home. Yeah, we know John Williams can take a theme meant for one thing and make it fit wonderfully for another thing. And that's true here. It wasn't the place for Victor's theme because it's a wonderfully emotional moment. So we close out the film feeling happy that Victor fulfilled his promise. And then the end credits gives us what would be considered a concert version of Victor's theme to send us humming on our way out of the theater. Emily Bernstein gets to stretch out the clarinet more here and will be joined by other woodwinds in a bit.
So if you got up and left the theater before the credits really finished, you missed some great moments. So the main members of the crew, like Spielberg and the producers, the writers, the editors, and of course John Williams, had their signatures displayed on the screen, kind of going back to the signatures that was part of that peanut can. And as I was going through, of course, I didn't know what Steven Spielberg's autograph looked like. I didn't know what Michael Kahn's autograph looked like. I didn't know what Janusz Kaminski's autograph looked like. But I knew what John Williams' autograph looked like because I have a few of them. And it wasn't until it came up that I was like, oh, so it's everybody's signature. And it was just so cool. Uh, I really loved it. it. It was just a nice little part of the end credits. And um, playing with Victor's theme just really helped kind of make us smile even more. But I really wish the terminal was more successful at the box office. I think Emily Bernstein might have received the same type of recognition Dan Higgins did for Catch Me If You Can. Unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to enjoy the benefits of seeing her name in the film credits. Bernstein died of liver cancer in January 2005, just about six months after this film was released, at just 46 years old. Bernstein took the assignment for the terminal in between chemotherapy treatments and said the work helped her keep her spirits high. So when I say the terminal wasn't successful at the box office, I mean that it didn't make $100 million in the American box office like most Spielberg films do. It made a profit of sorts with $77 million in the U.S. plus $140 million more internationally. The Terminal is a forgotten Spielberg film and a forgotten William score, mostly because the peer recognition for the film was virtually zero. No Academy Award or Golden Globe nominations, no Grammy nomination, nothing. Alex McDowell was honored with an award from the Art Directors Guild for Best Contemporary Film, but that didn't follow through to a nomination at the Oscars. Williams did win the award for Best Comedy Score from the International Film Music Critics Award. And I have to say the nominees were interesting, including Thomas Newman's Lemony Snicket movie and Shrek 2 from Harry Gregson Williams. This is the same voting body, mind you, that picked Sky Captain and The World of Tomorrow for Best Sci-Fi Score over Prisoner of Azkaban. So take of it what you will. With this score done in May 2004, John Williams had a pretty easy year ahead of him. It was time to rest his brain because 2005 was going to be another year for four film scores from John Williams, and he would essentially be tackling all four without a break. We won't take a break either on the baton and jump right into the first of these four compositions on the next episode, Revenge of the Sith. The final film in the Star Wars prequel trilogy would give Williams the chance to tie a nice bow on the music, and I'll be joined by a fan of the score to give us some insight into the next steps toward Anakin Skywalker's turn to the dark side. Please join us for that. Until then, please remember to post a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. Until next time, the baton is down. <laughs> <laughs>